to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. the podcast. So this morning it is February the 18th, 2022, and uh, we just passed the full moon and our Dharma brothers and sisters uh, throughout the Zen Buddhist world were thinking specifically about our home temple in Korea. They have just finished their um, their annual winter retreat, 90-day retreat season which always starts and ends on the full moon. So in honor of uh, what that, that season is called Gilche. So uh, this morning, Hwal Sun Sunim, our abbot, uh, suggested we do the podcast. So this podcast story uh, is from a book called My Heart is a Golden Buddha. And uh, My Heart is a Golden Buddha is a collection of stories from Korea and they are compiled by uh, Zen master Daehang Sunim. Daehang is a uh, Korean Zen Buddhist master and nun who was born 1927. in 1927. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the, the podcast over to Sunim, and he's going to read uh, the story Red Bean Porridge, and then we'll have a conversation about it. Long ago, there was a famous abbess whose style of teaching was quite different from other Zen masters of the time. She didn't teach sutras, nor did she emphasize the many precepts that monastics must uphold. She left the affairs of daily life up to the sunams themselves, and when she entrusted a nun with a particular job or assignment, she gave her complete authority to take care of things however she saw fit. In fact, there was only one thing she continually emphasized. Spiritual practice and daily life don't exist apart from each other. Everything that arises throughout our daily life is what we've previously made it's been recorded within our foundation and returns to us one by one with different shape. Every single thing arises from our foundation, so it is to there that we have to return everything that confronts us. This is true regardless of whether something arises from inside or seems to come from the outside of ourselves you have to return every single thing to your foundation without the least attachment and let them melt down there. Do this and the difficulties and hardships you face will melt down and come back out as positive things. 
When New Sunams first heard of entrusting everything to one's foundation, they tended to think it was fairly simple and easy to practice. The nun who was in charge of the cooking also had a similar thought. Ah, of course, everything arises from our foundation, so that's where I need to return everything. Ha! What could be simpler? However, actually doing this in the middle of her life proved to be a little more difficult than she thought. Not only were there a large number of sunams, which meant a large quantity of food to prepare, but the food could never be late. All of the dishes had to be ready when the meal bell rang and the sunams gathered. So the nun in charge of the kitchen was always tired and often exhausted. Moreover, on days with special ceremonies or memorials, there was so much work that anyone would need two bodies to keep up with it all. The cook was forever trying to take care of all the urgent tasks that kept arising, and it often seemed that for every one, she resolved, two more came to take its place. Entrusting everything to her inherent foundation was turning out to be harder than the kitchen nun had expected. On top of everything else, she was cooking for a large group. So no matter how much thought or care she put into the meals, someone was always complaining. They didn't like the flavor, or it had no flavor, or it was too salty, too spicy, and so on. At first, she was just hurt, but with time and fatigue, she found herself getting more and more resentful. What on earth am I working so hard for? Not one of them seems to appreciate what I'm doing. I'm up every morning before sunrise preparing their meals. Would it kill them to offer a word of thanks? As the months went by, feelings of being mistreated boiled up within her, and she began to realize how often she was getting caught up in these thoughts. She remembered what the abbess had said about returning everything to her inherent foundation. So she redoubled her efforts to actually let go and entrust all things that were confronting her. Sometime later, the kitchen nun was preparing the traditional red bean porridge that served every year on the winter solstice. There was a lot of work that day and she began to fall back into the thought that no one appreciated the work she did. Distracted by all of this, she built too big of a fire. In addition, the pot she used for the porridge was a huge one, cast iron, and over a yard in diameter. By the time she realized that she'd used too much wood, the porridge had already reached the boiling point. Large bubbles began to rise to the surface and burst, splattering the nun with boiling hot porridge and driving her away from the pot. She stood back a safe distance 
and just watched the bubbles as they continuously arose in the porridge. Suddenly, she felt like she'd been hit by lightning. Oh my goodness! Those bubbles aren't coming from somewhere else. Every single one is arising from inside of the pot, and I made it happen. All of the resentment and anger I've been feeling has arisen from how I used my mind. I'm the one who has made those things, and yet I kept blaming others. How could I have been this ignorant? Without a doubt, this agitation has been my foundation working to clear up my ignorance. At last, she truly understood what the abbess had meant. She stood in front of that pot of porridge, and as each bubble arose in the thick liquid, she would exclaim, This one's the Bodhisattva of wisdom. That one's the Bodhisattva of compassion. Hey, over there is the Buddha. As the bubbles swelled up, she gently popped them and watched as they collapsed in on themselves. After a while, when the red bean porridge had cooked for just the right amount of time, no more bubbles arose, and they no longer threatened to splatter people near the kettle. The porridge had reached the point where it could feed everyone. Okay, so we have the we have the mic settings how we want them for our conversation after that story about the red bean porridge. That was really uh, it's a really lovely story, Sunim. I can strongly relate since I've been a kitchen monk for all of the years that I have been a monk going on almost 20, <laughs> so I really have, um, Sunim has asked that I no longer read the stories before the podcast, so just like all of you out there, I uh, have heard the story for the first time, and uh, it's really making me smile and recognition of what this nun uh, went through. So thank you for sharing that story, Sunim. Do you mind, uh, could you talk or, or share your own mind on this teaching of returning everything to the foundation? I think what should be made clear, because the language itself might have... Um, issued the sort of thinking that you had to do it yourself. And, um, but the truth of the matter is, everything comes from the foundation. And if you leave it alone, it returns on its own to the foundation. Just like the bubbles in the red bean porridge. So the only thing you'd have to say that you're doing, and the word the abbess uses, which I would agree with, is just letting go. 
and making sure that whether it's your so-called inside energy, what we think is inside, memories and thoughts and feelings, are no different than what's occurring outside. And in both cases, the idea is just not to get caught up in them and just let them unfold naturally and they disappear back into the foundation, which is where they came from. The other thing I think that might, you know, be more helpful to people that have been practicing here and studying here and listening to our earlier discussions is that there are many terms to be used. This abbess has used the word foundation. And I've often uh, brought up recently uh, this idea of, of absence. Uh, and moreover, an example <coughs> of that <clears throat> has been, uh, say, a large body of water like Lake Superior representing the foundation that the waves appear out of and naturally return to. Yeah. Uh, and as, <clears throat> yeah, I think that uh, it's kind of interesting to me that um, this nun felt like All of the teachings that she shared with her, her students were about how to live this out in their day-to-day -day living. And of course, as you found out, and, and I certainly found out when I started my practice, it's much harder to do Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> once you leave the meditation hall. Well, that's true, and before we we did the podcast this morning, we were having a conversation about the the difficulty um, that that you face and I I face myself as um, as a very young teacher. You've been teaching Zen for more than thirty years. Excuse me. <clears throat> Thank you, Sunam. The difficulty that we we find ourselves in uh, trying to um, teach Zen in America and practice Zen in America, and I I was reflecting on on what you said, which is that it's it's so important, it's critical. You know, you really can't call it teaching Zen if you're unable to to help others, but also you know do it yourself to integrate. The practice of Zen into everyday life, and um, essentially, I think what that what I think that means, and I wonder if you could if you have thoughts on this, um, is to see your mind sort of appearing in the world as all of the the tasks that you so you know you kind of find yourself doing, whether it's you know getting up and brushing your teeth or getting to the car and driving to work, um, 
these are all sort of opportunities to uh, to basically let go and just do wholeheartedly what's in front of you without that typical separation where we're always thinking about things. And you've you've referred to that um, recently, I think inspired by Sam Harris, as thinking without knowing that you're thinking. So rather than doing something with all of your heart undivided, with a kind of undivided attention, which is at the heart of Zen practice, we're doing something while we're thinking about something else, even if it's a very subtle level of thinking. It's almost uh, invisible. But very rarely and uh, are we you know, completely one <clears throat> with what it is we're doing. And you shared that it's even more challenging in our culture to teach that and to practice that because so much of the work that we have in 2022 is thinking-based. So the idea of practicing Zen while, say, working on a computer or, um, you know, it, it, it does seem that there are very, very clear and specific challenges to doing this practice in modern times and a manual way of life uh, just seems to be so much more conducive uh, to that and, and um it seems to me to be the place that people need to start is by starting with the activities that are the most straightforward and simple, like cooking, cleaning. Well, I think that if you look at your life, and let's talk about somebody that spends eight hours a day at work on the computer, that leaves them another eight hours and I would suggest that those eight hours are taken up largely by manual work. Yeah. Like getting up and getting dressed in the morning is literally manual work. That's great. Yeah. Shoveling snow, as some people did this morning, is manual work. All those things have to go on in our lives. Right. In spite of the fact that we go to jobs... But when we're in our jobs, and even when we're at home, when we employ thinking, it's not a bad thing. Because we know that we're thinking about a particular job that's in front of us. Right. It's thinking without knowing you're thinking. When you're doing something, but you're thinking about something else, Right. that's when you're thinking without knowing you're thinking. And so the beauty of this story is you have this abbess, a Zen teacher, who is basically not interfering with her nuns other than to say, you know, everything that you do at this temple or Zen center, uh, your everyday life needs to be your spiritual practice. And and I think it, it goes without saying that, that so often in Zen circles and Buddhist circles, I can speak, you know, more clearly about my own culture here um, because I don't really understand how people are raised culturally, even though I've trained in Korea, I don't really understand what they're exposed to from a young age culturally. But here, culturally, uh, when we start thinking about, you know, practice, Buddhist practice or meditation or Zen practice, I, I do have a sense that automatically we go to the mental world, almost a metaphysical world, where we think, okay, there's something I have to do in my mind 
to practice Zen or to to awaken uh, or to uh, to achieve some level of, of peace. And what is so profound and simple, I think, about Zen teaching is that no, you have to come back to daily activities and to find a way to do them completely with all of your body and mind in that, without aggression, without greed, anger, just completely at ease, but fully attentive. And that to me seems to be, you know, a lot of people will ask, what is Zen? And they're, they're looking for a sort of philosophical answer. And I, yeah, it just, it, it seems that in order to teach Zen and explain Zen, you really have to put people in a situation where they're doing physical work of some kind. Um, oh, okay, listen. So it is not a metaphysical practice. It's very much rooted in the activities of everyday well, just life. Listen to the instructions that we give a newcomer. We teach them how to sit. Because here we don't sit on chairs. We could. Right. But we're going to spend a long time sitting during certain periods of time in a Zen center. Yeah. So we learn how to sit, either cross-legged or kneeling. If, if somebody has to, they can sit on a chair. But that in itself is physical work, right? So you're you're using your body, which is what you're always doing, yeah. even when you're at that computer job. That's true. Now, at the same time, the most basic thing that's unfolding is your breathing. Right. And thoughts are appearing. Right. So this has been squeezed down so that you're able to see exactly what's happening. So you're, the moment you notice, say you're counting your breath, that you're not counting your breath. You simply come back to counting your breath. Now, you shouldn't get disturbed by that. I would be more disturbed if I started counting my breath and 30 minutes later I hadn't even thought of my breath after the first two minutes. Mm. But if I came back and forth a hundred times in that 30 minutes, I would re realize I'm making progress. Yeah. I'm beginning to notice when I'm thinking without knowing I'm thinking. It, it, could, now, is that that's, an... the, that's in a very special environment. Yeah. But that environment exists everywhere else outside of the Zen Center once you begin to see that, so like your body's seen. involved, yeah. and now you've got your mind, and you're trying to bring them both into line to what you're doing. So it sounds like what we're, what we're really talking about, we could take the word Zen and Buddhism out of this equation. What we really seem to be talking about here is a fundamental tendency that human beings have for their body and their mind to be separate. Well, I've, I've referred to it as the, our default mechanism when we're not doing something, which in American society is a lot of the time, you know, when we're free, so to speak. Right. We default to reverie. Right. Or thinking about things. Right. Memories, what we're going to do next week. Right. Everything except what's right in front of us. That's right. Because we... 
we simply don't want to be involved in uh, what's going on in front of us, especially when it's cleaning the basement. Right. Or washing the dishes. So it's easier to sit around and talk to people after eating and hope somebody else washes the dishes than one person at least, but hopefully everybody gets up and takes care of the dishes. Right. Like it isn't that we don't sit down and take tea and have a little discussion here and there to to try to understand more of how we're putting this practice Mm. uh, into our day-to-day living. So, and and, yeah. and we notice over and over again that when people leave the meditation hall and say go downstairs to have tea, mm. if there's and there's a break, they have to go down. They have to fix their mat and they have to go downstairs, put their shoes on, and go downstairs. Mm. And in that time, they begin thinking of all other things. And pretty soon, the discussion down there is as far as possible from what they just heard. That's that's very true. It's very much in line with my experience living in Zen communities for for twenty five years, and it's it's also quite stark that as humans, you know, you've often reminded us here that human beings are, um, you know, biologically we're we are animals, we're primates. We often forget that, and we do have this tendency to conserve energy. It's a very strong tendency in the animal world that, you know, you you only do what's necessary for survival. You don't, you know, most creatures, you know, like our cat is not going to go clean his own uh, dish. We have to clean it for him. And I, I think that in the West, as we've gotten wealthier and have had more time, we tend to, yeah, we like to sit around and talk. And what I see going on in Zen culture, and definitely within you know, your teaching is that it's almost as if we are using that tension, that that initial sort of resistance to really to work, um, you know, getting up and washing the dishes, using that tension, bringing us back to an activity where that, that division of body and mind can be healed. Because in my life, I've never, I've never felt one, I've never come to an experience of oneness through talking. It's never happened. But it has happened through washing the dishes or, you know, shoveling the snow or making a meal. Not to say that it couldn't happen for someone maybe more evolved than me in spiritual practice. Um, But, yeah, so it's almost like we're working with a fundamental, the the nature of, of of an animal is to sort of avoid work, if at all possible, only to do the work that's needed for survival. But what I... The difference is that... When Damo rests, he rests. Right. When we rest, we think and we, I would call it reverie. Mm. Whatever comes up, we just kind of amuse ourselves We're with. We're kind of indulging. It's like, this is the entertainment. Right. Right? Instead of recognizing, yeah, it's going on. Right. And you can well be entertained by it. Right. But the moment you enter into it, yeah, it becomes thinking about something without knowing you're thinking about it. You're not just watching it any right. longer, but yet your nature, right. your foundation in this story, right. sees very clearly right. if you just pay attention. Yeah. Thank you, Sunam. So 
when you were when we're talking about I'm not being critical I'm only observing that when people get up off the meditation mat by the time they get downstairs and when I've come down before there's any structure yeah people are talking about everything but what just happened it's often immediate yeah and that's just an observation right what can help in that situation yeah is to i would call it pointing back to the question right like if anyone did that for one say what it, what do you think right thinking without knowing your thinking is do you get that so kind of pointing the discussion back towards something that matters rather than but something but anyone can do that in the community is what i'm pointing out of course yeah. that's that's the teacher's job it's the senior's job yeah. it's every member's job yeah. to recognize we're here trying to get out of a real huge problem in our lives and we need to help one another do that yeah. but if we're continually talking about you know where we're going to go this weekend right. to two or three people where it's kind of like they're going ho hum when is this going to end yeah. and you're talking as you're very enthusiastic about what's out there and and you've completely thought you're thinking and you're speaking about your thinking yeah. without knowing your thinking right. maybe and or knowing you're speaking about that yeah could we switch gears here Sundam, just to go back to this actual story that you just read I was, uh, you know, you're talking about our community, and then this story is revolving around a particular community, maybe real, maybe imagined. And there is this abbess who seems to be very unconventional in her leadership style, in that uh, she, you know, once she she seems to be a good, very good at delegating. You know, the the opening paragraph talks about how she. Once she turns over a job or a stewardship to a nun, she completely gets out of their way and trusts them to take care of it from start to finish. So, and focuses her energy on really um, reminding the nuns that the most important thing is to return everything to the to the to the foundation. So we can't really do that with people unless they know what it is they're trying to do. You know, if you turn over something important to an American, most most of us in America will sort of, um, I don't know, there, there's a certain sloppiness in our culture that you really don't find in the monastic traditions, in, in my experience. So I wonder how, yeah, it's very tricky. Um, you're getting long-winded right now. Yeah. What is it you're trying to bring up? Well, how, do, how we to have do, to, do we have to water down? You know, you and I both come from a Zen tradition that is very old and quite specific. And now we're in, we're in America, and it's a radically different culture. So in order to practice what this nun is doing at her temple... We'd have to, in my opinion, we'd have to really, really lower our standards in order to not interfere with the conduct of, of others while we sort of turn things over to them. And so I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, uh, do we just let nature take its course? Um, because the, other, the only other choice seems to be interference. And you're a huge proponent of not interfering with people's process. Okay, well, I think that... 
that's a you'll have to understand a little better about non-interference. Non-interference is all about where you don't belong. Now, if people become members of the Zen Center and asking you to help them study Zen, yeah. they're asking you to interfere. And I would put it, you know, in that sense, interference sounds like uh, a bad word. But constructive criticism, for example, is interference that's applied in a situation where somebody's asked for help. Yeah. So if you put people at a job, and usually the jobs here, there's there are varying uh, jobs, but most of them are very st straightforward. Yeah. And it's easy to tell when somebody's mind is someplace else, right. or, and or, they don't know how to shovel or sweep or right. the way that a good cleaning of something is done according to the standards that are set in a Zen center. Right. I think that's a fairly common thing. Right. I've never been in a Zen center that cleanliness wasn't important. Right. When you do, a, when you clean up the dishes, you really clean them up. Right. And all of that right. is because now you're applying your full energy right. into what you're doing. Right. And I don't think that's hard to teach. Right. It's hard for people to do. Right. That's exactly what this story is saying. Right. It's a lot harder than it seems. Right. But it's a, I would call it, a, 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 in my own place, in, in my own case, I had to think of it in terms of disciplining myself to do what I've been taught to do. And I think everyone, at some in some situation, has had that experience in their lives yeah. where they really wanted to learn something and somebody was teaching them. And so they really paid attention and tried to do that. So are you saying that, that Zen practice is really, I mean, I guess it goes back to what, what uh, Dehing is sharing in this story. It's that Zen practice is very simple. Philosophically, we're taking a normal everyday life and we're infusing it with meaning by doing whatever it is we do wholeheartedly bringing that inherent division of body and mind together so when we wash the dishes we just wash the dishes and when we notice that we we're getting carried away we're no longer washing the dishes maybe you know, we're 70% there 30% elsewhere but the thing bring is it back. The, the point of this story is mm that no matter what you're doing, whether you're sitting in a meditation hall at the Detroit Zen Center, yeah. or you're, you're, you're at home, yeah. or you're at a restaurant, right. the very same thing is happening. Things are coming up. Some of those things appear from, that seem to appear from the outside, some from the inside, right. but it's always the same. Right. When you see them, yeah. rather than getting involved with them, right. they automatically return to the foundation, your original nature. That's where they come from. Left alone, that's where they'll return. And as you begin to pay less attention to them, yeah. less involvement in them, yeah. they clean themselves. They evolve. You're talking here about your own sort of uh, your own consciousness. Well, I would 
we could trade foundation for consciousness. Mm. It, whatever the substrate that you want to use is. Mm. For me, I've used all kinds, whether it's yeah. the sky or Lake Superior, or, right. or just simply your Buddha nature is some kind of a, a gossamer uh, a screen that just right. uh, produces everything and right. also receives everything. Right. And when we're able to not interfere, right. there's a case where non-interference is important. Right. You just see what's going on. So you start just with imagine. not interfering with yourself. Of course. With your own processes. Isn't that what we're implying when we say, yeah. see what's going on, but don't get involved with it, because that's who you are. Right. You are the person that's able to see what's going on. You are not the going on. Right. You are the seeing of what's going on. Well, it feels to, it seems to me that you are, you're illustrating here the, 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 the critical point of this story where the nun went through several months of, of tension with these particular thoughts and resentments um, and bitterness coming up based on what she thought were external stimuli, the, the, the poor support by the nuns, the criticism of her food. And so she was, she was erroneously thinking that, oh, these nuns and the way they're treating me are causing these particular thoughts and feelings to appear. So she's kind of being victimized by, by her circumstances. What I hear you illustrating here is that those thoughts and feelings came from her. There may or may not have been certain stimuli, even those we could argue can't even be perceived without your own mind perceiving them. But without getting into a whole other philosophical tangent there, her thoughts and feelings, my thoughts and feelings are my own. And so the only way I hear you illustrating here to work with that is to see them as they arise, regardless of what they are like, whether they're positive or negative, and that they will have a lifespan, and then they will return to where they came from, which is you. And then what are you left with there? One, one thing I have to say about what you just said. The bubbles return to the porridge. All that happened was that her thoughts distracted her from building the fire to start with, and right. she built it too big. Right. So we heat up our minds with all kinds of thoughts of I anger see. and resentment. That's interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what she saw happening... Yeah she realized was the same thing that happens to her. All of those resentments and angers were bubbling up. Right. She thought from inside of her. Right. But the point is that those thoughts and feelings and resentments are not who you are. They can never be my thoughts. Right. They're thoughts. They're being produced. Could you say they're a product of your behavior? You're, they're a product of, of to what degree you're able to integrate your body and mind in, into your daily activities. In other words, if you're working wholeheartedly, the bubbles of anger, resentment, and so on don't really have, um, they don't really have the, the fuel to rise up. What would be rising up is something different. Is that right? 
Well, no, I think it's a process. Mm. I think those bubbles, when you over have overcooked yourself, mm. in other words, you've been thinking and feeling and blaming yeah. others for a Not long doing time. Not what you're doing, right. Yeah. So when you now begin to do what you're doing, yeah. all of that's going to come up. Is that, that's interesting. But this time, you don't make it worse than it is. You see it rather than getting involved with it. Exactly. So you do have to deal with, we could maybe call that karma. We, you do have to do with residual. You're shaking your head because don't you don't Don't put that, like that word, word in there. Okay. Okay, we could call that... Um, Past experience. Residual residual experiences, residual tendencies. So those things are going to have to Look, come up. In my life, yeah. what comes up all day long yeah. is something called the Hwadu. Hmm. Now that comes up because since 19... 19- 87, I've been working with it. At first, it really seemed like an effort to remember. Sometimes hours would pass, uh, and it would never occur to me. But more and more, it just appeared. It would be like a nagging injury. You just keep thinking about it, yeah, and it gets worse and worse. But now here's something that I'm, I begin thinking about it, and pretty soon it begins appearing on its own because I've given so much thought to it, but I, I don't want to think about it. Yeah. I simply want to see it's appearing and go, right. it's just like everything else. Right. The Hwadu appears out of the foundation. Right. And I don't get involved with it. Right. And it disappears. Just like every single thing. But that only happened because, in a sense, you, you, your anger, your resentment, your frustration is grist for the mill. Yeah. And that mill, and you, you suggested that, evolves those things. They they take a different she used term they a different shape I would say a different form. Right. The more that you don't in, in, involved in them, they become more like where they come from. So they sort of lose their. They come. You could say they come yeah. from the calm, don't they? The foundation. The nature of the lake. Yeah. 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 And they return to that. Right. So what happens when you don't get involved with them? Yeah. Is they get become when they appear. They're more like the lake. What she's saying is that they're more beautiful thoughts. More reflective. Yeah. Not to get caught in. Yeah. Well, the wonderful... But they're, le- they're not troublesome, right? right? If I'm thinking of beautiful things, like how to you know, make the Zen Center more beautiful, right? it's not a problem. I don't have to think about it, but right. I'm saying that's a thought I don't get angry about or resent right. that it comes up. right. That makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah, I think what we're what we're saying is that by, it's not that we're we are, you can't change, the tendency. You can't change the types of thought and feeling that your consciousness produces directly. Except by letting them go. Right, but right, but you can change them. What I hear you saying, I think, is that you have the ability to influence them. 
or indirectly change the content of your thoughts and your feelings down the road by doing what's in front of you wholeheartedly and allowing you know the thoughts that bubble up that maybe are not so attractive you just let you sort of um, you let them be and they they have of their own accord they will come more into line with our nature which is uh, reflective and, and uncontaminated um, uh, quite lovely yeah I mean there's nothing in nature that that I witness when I get out of a the man-made world um, there's really nothing when we go for walks in the mountains together at the hermitage everything's quite lovely you know there are some difficult things if you see another animal killing another animal those things are quite challenging to consider lovely um, but at the same time there's a certain there's an understanding there that this is how creatures survive but when it comes to human beings we make all kinds of stuff up and I hear you saying that humans can evolve beyond that um, by getting out of the way there's a difference between having the thought come up that I want to have a lot of money and then the way I go about that mm. Could you speak more about that, Sunim? Well, we have billionaires in the world that have exclusively made their vocation gathering as much wealth as possible. Right. So every day, their thoughts about how to increase that. Right. And of course you can. Right. But what if you see wealth differently than money? Mm. What if you see wealth is living within your foundation? Right. Where all of the frustration that those experience anger getting the you know, making the billions. There's all kinds of difficulties along the way. That's for sure. In fact, there's incredible difficulties. But I think as Americans we have to reframe what we call wealth. Mm. Like from my point of view, just like my teacher was teaching me how to really be wealthy. Yeah. That's really a great point, Sunim. And I, in order to reframe our view of wealth, it seems to me we have to have the experience of what wealth really is. And that's what you're talking about here. Is that right? Having an experience of a unified consciousness letting things be you know the things that we're describing through this story will lead one to an experience of true wealth does that then automatically soften the the desire that we have to accumulate wealth from the outside in your experience well i think that you know we all need a certain amount of wealth to live. Yeah. It's the disproportionate amount. Right. So most people can be critical 
at some level, I guess you'd say, when we know that so much of the wealth in this country is held by such a small portion of people with people still starving on the streets. Right. So that's because of the emphasis on building wealth. Right. And so no one disputes that you need a certain amount of wealth. Right. But it's the extravagance of wealth right. that's left us where we are right. today. Right. We can't, you know, that's up to the politicians. They can bring that back to some degree by redistributing the wealth at some level. But what I'm talking about is at the very foundational level of our human existence. I don't know out of the top of my head the statistics on the the lack of happiness in the wealthy right. versus the unwealthy. Right. What that what that relationship is like. Right. But my sense of things is that whether you come from that wealthy class or the unwealthy class, you can be truly wealthy in your own life. Right. That means free and at ease of all the struggles that humans have, whether they're wealthy or not wealthy. Right. I've seen poor people that are struggling all the time, yeah. working just as hard as anybody that's working hard to make money. Right. And they're not happy with their lives. Right. They're looking for something else. The something else is that personal wealth that comes from seeing who you are. Yeah. And not by some, you know, metaphysical idea or belief or dream about it. Yeah. But the actual experience of right. it. That's why you told me a few weeks ago you taught people, I think, on a Sunday or one of the times to do sundo for 15 or 20 minutes before right. they started and several people said wow that was really helpful yeah well what did they do they did a they took a activity. comfortable position and they paid attention to their breathing right it's not magic right but it takes discipline right if we ask how many of those people and since they left here ever went home and lay down and did it you'd mm-hmm. probably find nobody right. or very few that points right back to that, that tendency we have as, as human animals to conserve energy and not do things that we think take effort. It's really a, a very, I, I just, I, it, you're helping me see here, Sunim, that Zen is, is very subtle. Well, you're bringing up a good point. What they, in this case, it wouldn't have anything to do with, with, with physical effort. Mm. You're laying in a prone position. Mm. We call it the corpse pose in yoga. Mm. It's the mental part That's right. that we see as too much effort. Well, any type it's of easier exertion. to be in reverie, right. dreaming about things, right. than actually paying attention to what we're doing. So but the only solution to our lives right now, yeah. no matter how you go about it, yeah. is to be intimately involved with what's present in our lives each moment. Well, what I hear you point... And that never changes. You know, Sinem, this is really, really subtle, and it's got, got me quite excited here. This point that you're making is that Zen practice is a very... is an evolutionary practice. And what we're taking here is our tendency to be human animals and to avoid exertion unless needed, mental and physical. And first, in my own life, I see this so clearly 
that I have to almost go against my biology and resist my biological tendency to avoid exertion and put myself consciously into, into my life, whether I'm cleaning the dishes or having to figure out the financial budget. I have to really work to get myself in those positions and not avoid them. And then when I'm there, to pay attention fully. That seems to me to be at the heart of a Zen practice. It's very much a... Okay, listen to me. Almost a going against of the biology. Somebody that sits at a computer all day, that's mental exertion. Yes. Laying down or sitting down with your breath is not mental exertion. Then why do we find that so difficult? Because we've become habitual to involvement with what appears to be going on, mm. whether it's inside or outside. We've sort of taken everything like, out Where of are it. you taught yeah. what, what we're trying to teach right here? Well, we're not taught this in our culture. Exactly. So you're asking why. That's why. This isn't difficult. Because it's only difficult because we've gone so far in the wrong direction. Well, it seems like what, what happens when you strip everything else away you know, if you're sitting at the computer doing a spreadsheet, you can be 80% there and it's not a big deal. You might be sort of unconsciously thinking about what you're going to get for lunch. No, there, there's no might be. You are That's right. what, exactly what's happening because you notice that right. when you sit in meditation and try to follow your breath, which can't be any, you can't come up with anything simpler than right. that. That's right. But we, we make it, it's almost, it, it feels... For most people, we report that that feels almost impossible in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. and it is. Yeah. I, I, we we understand that. It's yeah. very, very difficult. Yeah. But it's doable right. because we have a history, 2,500 years right. of people able to do it and coming out the other side. Using that as a launching pad to freedom. I... I I like this term that people use all the time in our culture. This, what we're talking about, is absolutely not rocket science. <laughs> right. No. But it requires you disciplining your your mind. Yeah. Many people can discipline their bodies. Yeah. Some people have trouble with that, but let's right. say, yeah, that's the easy part. Right. Right. Now disciplining your mind, that's the hard part. Trial and error. Yeah, well, of course. Like, But what in life is not trial and error? Yeah. Well, it's very nice, I think, for folks to hear a story like this. I think many of us in the West imagine monasteries and Zen centers to be uh, perfect places. And here we're talking about a Zen nun struggling with her own mind, just like uh, all of us do. Well, we've both been in monastic settings. There's yeah. just as much struggle going on there <laughs> as anywhere else in the world. The right. point is that we're addressing the struggle. Well, the struggle seems to be... We're addressing the mental struggle. That's right. We're not pretending that it's not there, right. but we're addressing it. Yeah, for sure. That That is the, a very subtle but really profound distinction. Well, Sunam, I think that we've taken enough of your time with uh, the red bean porridge story. It's a really nice story. And thanks for sharing it and having a conversation with me about that. <laughs>